Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast. So I used to do this thing where I used to get a towel, right? This is when I was a kid. Get a towel and sort of stuff one end in the back of my shirt and uh, let, let the towel sort of drape behind me. It was a cape, right? I was making a little, a little cape. And sometimes if I was feeling really industrious and ambitious, I'd, uh, I'd look around for a safety pin. And I'd sort of, you know, clip it around the front, uh, safety pin it to the front of myself so it would really stick in there. Because what you do once you have a cape is you fly, right? You sort of run through the house with your arms out and you're, you're Superman and you're, you're flying. And, you know, you, you jump onto the bed on your stomach. So you get that split second, that sort of half second of flight, and then and that was it. That was freedom. You, you were officially a superhero at that point. You could conquer the world. You could conquer anything. And then you grow up and you go to the movies and you watch other people conquer the world wearing capes and uh, spandex and various other implements. But what if I told you that simply being present is a, a superpower, a kind of power that we tend to shy away from, but that meditation can help us? get used to. Well, that is the topic of today's talk by Dr. Shante Smalls. Shante Smalls, as you know, is a regular contributor to the podcast. In addition to being a meditation teacher, she also teaches pop culture, comic books, uh, science fiction, uh, all the various theoretical frameworks and academic criticism around fandom, all that, all that fun stuff. So this was a great examination of meditation through the lens of superheroism. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy it, too. Visit our website, nyadachimbala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. We have a meditation weekend series. They're called Shambhala Training Weekends. Uh, Shambhala Training Weekend 1 is the first in the the series. And it's coming up the weekend of June 29th. That's Friday night, June 29th. Uh, Most of the day Saturday and half of the day Sunday. It's a little meditation mini retreat. It's a great way to um, deepen your meditation practice, or if you're a beginner, to just dive right in and really establish a regular meditation practice for yourself. For more information and to register, click the link on the homepage for Shambhala Training Weekend 1, Feel Human Again. And now, to tickle the nerd inside all of us, here is Shante Smalls. I am... I'm a comic book sci-fi nerd. I've been all my life, and um, uh, when I was thinking about uh, the talks, I was, uh, I'm one of the resident Weekly Dharma Gathering teachers, and so I was thinking about the talks, I was topics, I thought, oh, um, New Avengers would have been out, um, Black Panther, uh, Deadpool 2 is out, so I was like, oh, you know, obviously I'm a Marvel person, but um, uh, I wanted to think, I was thinking actually really truthfully is inspired by uh, my teacher, this gentleman, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, and in November, he was here in New York giving a talk about his um, most recent book, The Lost Art of Good Conversation, and we had a event at, um, the uh, New York Ethical Cultural Center, about five, 600 people there. And then that was Friday night and, and Saturday. And then uh, Sunday, he did an event just for members here. So he was seated in his throne, which is to the le- my left. And, um, you know, the Sakyang, he, you know, I know him and he's a very, um, What I, what I say about him is that he's a real human. And I started to think about what we think about in terms of sometimes the fantasy of um, both an awakened being and also a, like a, a superhero um, is that they're kind of 
so different from us, right? That they're, uh, um, they've got something we don't. And according to the Buddha Dharma, we all are actually awake. It's just that we may have varying degrees of, um, we may be in varied, varying degrees of like karmic hoarding. So we all like have these beautiful homes, but we may have a hoarding problem. And so we can't see what's actually around us because habit, um, trauma, distraction, um, laziness, ignorance, aggression, keep us in what is called samsara or it's just a cyclical pattern. We don't even need any fancy Sanskrit words. You can just a cyclical pattern. We all have them, right? Oh, I'm gonna give up sugar. But Talenti's having a sale, you know, whatever. That's me, okay, that's that's that Or, uh, you know, okay, not gonna get into an argument with person X, right? We know how that goes. You know, when the, when the person stands too close to me on the train or doesn't take their backpack off during rush hour, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna be okay with it. I'm gonna work with that. But we get into our habits because they give us some degree of comfort, one, and two, um, then they become like reflexes, right? We're no longer making choices, we're just reacting, right? Stimulus response. But a wakeful person or a superhero as I'm identifying it or defining it here is someone who has some sense of themselves and their patterns. They've spent some time examining how they live their lives. And this gentleman that I've been fortunate enough to meet and call my teacher and have conversations with, and our conversations are like this. How are you, sir? I'm well, how are you? I'm well. Okay. <laughs> but there's some, there's lots of smiling and there's a, a, a sense of heart connection and just a little humor and um, so much tenderness. And when you're in the presence of someone who's awake, you can't help but want to wake up yourself. It's really, it's catching. It's not just bad stuff that um, spreads. Someone's intelligence and bravery and confidence and uh, heartfulness can be, um, can turn you on too. They can ignite that very same, those same qualities that are already in all of us, but maybe we don't have the confidence or we feel like, well, I did, wasn't born in Dhamsala where he was born and a, you know, my mom didn't take me around to all of the holy sites in India and my father wasn't a great realized teacher and I, you know, but the fact of the matter is that every human being has the ability to meditate and so that means that every single one of us can wake up. What are, just when you think of the word superhero, what comes to mind? Just shout some things out. We don't need the mic. I'll, I'll repeat it. You hear superhero, what do you, what do you think? Unattainable. Unattainable. Unattainable, okay. Standing for justice. Fearless. Fearless. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Special powers. Adversity. 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 Compassionate. Okay. A savior. A savior. Huh. Uh huh. 
selfless. Flying. Flying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Strength. Strength. And when you think of a human being, what words come to mind? Fragile. Fragile. Imperfect. Messy? <laughs> yes. Complex. Distracted. Okay, now we're getting, we're getting personal with ourselves. Stressed. Yeah. Selfish. So you're saying that superheroes, through your own, this little, our own crowdsourcing, superheroes, let's say the superhero is an earthling, or looks like a human, and humans seem to have completely different qualities. Right? But how is that possible if the superhero is a human being? There must be some inherent quality in that person that maybe it comes forth because fine, they were in a gamma ray accident and <laughs> that's the incredible halt for people who didn't know that. Or struck by lightning or something, but there's, it's not just about the powers, right, that they have, the extraordinary speed or, you know, um, flying or controlling the elements. But there's also this heart quality. There's also this sense of many superheroes have tragedy and they make a choice. The difference between almost all superhero heroes and their villain, you know, counterparts is that they've just made different choices with their similar tragedies. Or you have superheroes like Batman where you're like, is he a superhero or is he a villain? Because this guy's crazy, you know? So there's a whole uh, Batman storyline about Batman and the Joker being sort of one and the same. But it's about these sort of, they're kind of noticed the world around them. And they maybe felt a sense of they wanted to do something. And maybe they ignored that or they tried to hide from that. And then maybe, you know, there's some turning point and then they get a little crew. I was, uh, my partner and I have been going, I, I watch certain movie series every year. So I watch all the Harry Potter movies every year. I watch all the Aliens movies every year. Uh, I, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of time, but someone's gotta do it and I'm, I'm willing to make a sacrifice. <laughs> so we watched Harry Potter. We went through all the, I'm gonna talk about the Matrix. We watched all three of the Matrixes, which I hadn't done in a while. We made our way to The Hobbits and now we're on Lord of the Rings, which is not as good as I, they were last year, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed by everyone. <laughs> like, damn it, Pippin! <laughs> um, so I was really struck, I was watching the, we were watching the Matrix, and then Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions, and I hadn't watched them in a while, and one thing I was struck by was the problem with, um, in the arc of the Matrix, um, mythology, the character Neo is a uh, 26th or 27th iteration of this um, savior figure. And there's been lots of, there's books on, you know, Matrix and philosophy and lots of books about sort of Christian um, uh, mythology and Buddhist mythology and the Matrix and lots of different capitalism, lots of different things you could apply to it. But one of the things that really struck me was that in the, the iteration in which we see these, this character in these movies, what's different is that he's um, fallen in love. And that he's also made friendships. And it seems to be that the other saviors 
had um, been solo. They were solo heroes. And I was really struck by the, I mean, this is not anything new, but I was really profoundly struck by the power, the unquantifiable power of connection to other human beings or other sentient beings even. And how that creates um, bonds and energetic um, worlds that are far more rich, complex, as someone said, than our own little plans and schemes. You know what I mean? Like, you know when you're like, I'm thinking of an example from my own life. You know when you uh, have an idea that you're excited about, and you maybe you do your little bullet journaling or whatever it is, and you, you have it, and you kind of keep it to yourself, and you're maybe a little shy about it, maybe a little excited about it. But then you have coffee with a friend, and you start talking and riffing, and they ha they are, they're encouraging you. And they're saying, yes, I, I see it. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's blooming. There's something about the, that connection that we're meant to have as human beings that actually makes us more awake and alive and actually more present even. It gives us power. Relationships are power, actually. And they're powerful. And I was struck by, I mean, the, the romance is like totally overwrought and it's like every time Neo and Trinity see each other, they run to each other and kid, I mean, it's, you're like, come on, all right, you know. <laughs> Punch someone, you know what I mean? Like, come on, stop. But, um, <laughs> but there's, a, there's a really beautiful symbiosis between Trinity and, and Neo and Morpheus and their whole crew and their friends and there's a sense of they believe in one another. Community, right? There's a communal aspect to it that's not individualistic. And maybe that's, you know, offensive or uh, feels like an affront to those of us who have grown up in the United States and we really, um, the myth of individualism is so powerful that we feel guilty and ashamed when we uh, want to ask for help. We actually live in a time and a culture and have for a long time where we'd rather continue to be hurt or hurt ourselves than say, I don't know, or I need help. Sometimes that's gendered, sometimes that's generational, sometimes that's racialized, right? Sometimes it's associated with class, these kind of people, we don't, we don't ask for help, you know? And it's a lie. Because we actually can't tap into our, first of all, other people and situations are really irritating. And that helps us to see something about ourselves. It's very easy to be spiritual, um, meditating on a mountain by yourself and just, you know, singing to the rabbits or whatever, you know what I mean? But what happens when you have to engage with life and other people and work and family and just going to the grocery store sometimes can be like a test of everything you've got. <laughs> you know, Trader Joe's at certain hours like, whew. So there's a sense of kind of noticing, huh, what's going on with me? What's going on in the outside world? Is it the outside world that's the problem? Because, you know, when things are good, I also complain. When the weather's too cold, I don't like it. When it's too hot, I don't like it. So how do I live in this world when I have no control over many, many things? Well, part of that is beginning to have a sense of maybe there's 
some equilibrium I can find within myself, since the world's, um, the very nature of life is to be chaotic, right? Because it's change. Pema Chodron, who is probably our most famous teacher in Shambhala says, um, she tells a story about how a, a old kind of parable of a man was walking and his feet were burning because the ground was hot and he thought, I have to cover the whole world with leather, which is an impossible task. And then he realized, oh, or I can put the leather on my feet. Shoes, right? And it's not just us. We have a, an economy that is driven by, um, you know, now we're, the Matrix was feeling so pertinent because it's like we literally are, you know, the Matrix came out in 1999 and now almost 20 years later. <laughs> I saw it in the movie theater, so I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm old. Um, almost 20 years later, we're even more plugged in, right? Um, our phones weren't smart then. I had a StarTac. I don't know if anyone remembers those phones. So you couldn't, you could barely text with those. You're like, duh, duh. But now we're really cyborgs in the sense that we are um, dependent on this kind of advanced technology. And some really smart people have figured out how to monetize our emotions, what we eat. Um, what we see, what we watch, what we've done for the day, and get us to talk about it, and we generate all the content for their sites. And then they sell us things back based on what we talk about. It's genius. It's like evil genius. So we're literally in a system where we're in a feedback loop of uh, talking about things, having conversations, and advertisements pop up, and other people, and then we're like, oh, I have this idea, but it's not really our idea. It's an algorithm's idea. And then we maybe start to feel depressed because we see our friend having a, a good life. Their curation skills are really amazing and their, cure, their Instagram is impeccable, you know? But a superhero is someone who actually has the confidence to be who they are. Warts and all, right? to be present in the world and to say, I'm scared, I'm happy, I'm complex, and I'm gonna form relationships with others and I'm gonna do what I can in the world to make it safer. In Buddhism, we would call that kind of person a bodhisattva. Has anyone ever heard that term? So that is someone who's committed to the wakefulness of the entire world before their own. If they had the opportunity to wake up, be an awakened being, be a Buddha, they would say, not until every other being has woken up. They dedicate their lives. There are stories of people who come back over and over again Whether or not you believe in reincarnation doesn't matter, but who come back over and over again. Energy cannot, matter cannot be destroyed or created, so that energy comes back over and over again to help people, sentient beings, wake up. Working with different principles, patience, exertion, meditative uh, absorption, prajna or knowledge, generosity, discipline. I think I got all six. And it's not easy, actually, because everything, I think, 
And the world is telling us, go for self. Take care of number one. And there's, there's nothing wrong. We have to actually take care of ourselves. We should take care of ourselves. And we're all here because something's, we sense something's off. We sense we've gotten away from something very fundamental. In Shambhala, we call that basic goodness, which doesn't mean goodness in the sense of good or bad, but just our inherent intelligence, our inherent worthiness. Just by being born, we are worthy. Nothing to do. No bills to pay, no courses to take. Just by being born, we're worthy of our place on this planet while we live. And since time is short for all of us, no matter how old we are, how do we want to live that life, you know? Look at my notes on my smartphone. I'm ramping this up. So I just want to read a little, uh, it's not a Dharma book, but um, I also, in my professional life, I actually teach comics and, uh, <laughs> and sci-fi movies. And so I have a lot of books on theory of comics and science fiction and also a lot of short stories. And uh, I just picked this book out of my personal library and um, I turned, I just liked the title, which was The Token Superhero. And it talks about a, uh, a young black man, teenager from Mississippi, who tested positive for a superhero gene. And he, um, he uh, is asked to join like a Teen Titans type um, for, team force and, you know, racism rears its ugly head. He doesn't get any sponsorship. He doesn't have any comic books. He doesn't have any um, uh, action figures. And he sort of is like, becomes bitter because he sees every other, the other teens becoming famous. So he gives up and try, he goes to college and tries to have a regular life. But one day he's on the train and he sees some kids bullying some other kids. And so these other kids come on and they are wearing um, a t-shirt, handmade t-shirts with his superhero name on it. And so he says, um, yes, he'd been a token black superhero in a world made up mostly of white heroes. Yes, his name was ridiculous. His name was Black Fist. And he hated that it was a constant reminder that others felt the need to state the obvious when it came to defining who he was a hero. And yes, it sucked that he didn't get credit where credit was due. But that wasn't how those kids in the subway saw him. To them, he was simply a superhero they admired enough to make their own t-shirts emblazoned with his image. And that was enough to make Alonzo Ramey rethink everything. And so Alonzo Ramey went back to being a superhero. He once again donned his Black Fist costume and took to the streets fighting crime. But this time around, he changed his personal definition of what it meant to be a superhero. Yes, he still spent time slugging it out with super criminals and engaging in what amounted to a ridiculous carnival sideshow, but that was only part of what he did. Instead of patrolling the streets of the inner city and busting gangbangers, he spent much of his time reaching out to the youth that most people saw as a threat. He became known as much for being a community organizer superhero as he did for being a superhero. With the money from his first real endorsement deal, he bankrolled his own comic book series, which was geared toward promoting literacy. Over the years, Blackfist felt the bitterness rise up inside of him from time to time, as well as the cyn cynicism. He hated his name, didn't care much for the costume, and when he finally got his own action figure, they made his lips look way bigger than they were in real life. But whenever these things got to him, Alonzo Ramey remembered that at the end of the day, none of these things mattered. For him, his life would always be defined by a group of boys and girls, no more than 14 or 15 years old, wearing t-shirts with hand-drawn designs inspired by Black Fist. His life would not be defined 
as much by his adventures as by the adventures recounted in comic books that helped young people learn to read. That's what defined him. That's what let him know that despite all, he was really a superhero. So in meditation, it's very interesting because we sit by ourselves often, but also in groups, and we are working with the body and the breath to be present. And if you've ever had the experience of what it's like to be asleep to a situation and then wake up to it just a little bit, it feels like a whole new world has opened up. I remember uh, when I came to Shambhala, I had been meditating on and off since I was 16, mostly off. And I had a lot of arrogance around, or let's say I had embarrassment that manifested itself as arrogance. And I was very resistant to like, just being taught. And um, you know, but I listened, I read books and I listened to um, podcasts. And uh, anyway, I started practicing with a few different communities and I made my way to Shambhala through Pema Chodron's books and Trimpa Rinpoche, who founded Shambhala through his books. And what I found was that, one, I had reached a kind of plateau of meditating on my own. And I really needed to be taught. That's what I needed. I really needed to like plug into people who knew what they were doing. What I discovered, or what I uncovered was everything I had been running away from my whole life. My cowardice, my arrogance, my neuroses, my aggression, um, sitting with the kind of manifestation of my atypical neurology, feeling embarrassed about that. But what I realized is that all those aspects of me contained incredible wisdom. That's how I was gonna wake up. It wasn't from meditating, erasing that shante and downloading a new one that I was gonna wake up. It was actually the cowardice and the arrogance and the neurosis and the, that was the very material that was going to help me to become friendly with myself. Particularly the aggression, the self-aggression and the aggression towards others. But really self-aggression, negative self-talk as motivation, right? And over the years, what's happened is that I have woken up a little bit. I'm not so asleep. It's very nice. It's very hard. It's very lonely. It's very exciting. It's incredibly powerful. And I've realized that, you know, through having a teacher and meditation instructor and friends who are on the path with me, it just is just it's never ending and it just keeps unfolding. I, um, I'll wrap up here so we can have some questions, but I, I'm in a sort of newish relationship, it's serious, and it's so <laughs> I'm learning a lot about myself. Um, and uh, we were talking about how hard it is to actually enjoy good things, and how much, uh, and I said, you know, I just have made a decision to just enjoy this because there's so much, there's so much, there's so many terrible things that I accept without question. I'm just like, okay, I'm just gonna work with that. But when something's good, it's like, I, I don't know what to do with this, you know? And so practice really comes in in the sense of just being 
um, wakeful to another human being and not just engaging in my own patterns. You know, I've spent a lot of time by myself with my dogs and so I'm very like set in my ways and it's like opening up to another, how another person puts the dishes away. I mean, I don't even know these things were important. I'm like, really? This is like, this is the level we're at? Like, put the, put it like that. Um, it's like, whoa. <laughs> but it's like, I can work with that. You know, that's, it's great. It's like, this is how we wake up. Like, oh. We're superheroes, right? We're superheroes that have not yet, we don't yet believe in our heroic capabilities and our wakefulness. We think it's out there and we're waiting for it to happen, but it's here. Meditation is the key that unlocks our brilliance. That's really the fruition of all of this, is not necessarily being a nice person, although you learn how to, what to say and what not to say, and you don't, I, I don't have to say everything I think. But there's a sense of um, stability, clarity, and strength that one gains. And then from there, you're able to engage the world in a very different way, I think. So we can do it. And the world needs you. So I'd love to um, maybe have a couple of questions. Thank you. Um, would you talk a little more about this idea that realizing that these, that let's say your self-aggression is actually the key to opening the door to awakening. Because for me, I feel like my self-aggression is like a wall between me and the world. Sure. Well, it functions both ways, right? So the self-aggression is a habit. It's a habitual pattern that um, keeps us from being free, from engaging the world, from letting the world pierce our heart, right? So we have these, whatever it is, negative self-talk or self-aggression, and usually there's some external aggression too with that. So on the kind of surface level, of course, it keeps us trapped. We call that cocoon. Yeah. In a cocoon from which you never emerge, right? You just like set up shop. At the same time, that's actually the material where the wisdom is. If it, we just sort of let it stay there as habit and never really like investigate it or feel it or work with it, it's just gonna be a block. But when we begin to really feel what it feels like to be what's under that self-aggression or how does that self-aggression really feel? How does it feel when you say that horrible thing to yourself? How does that really feel? It probably breaks your heart. And the self-aggression is actually, uh, was at some point wisdom, right? Or maybe protection. And then it became a habit that outlived its usefulness. And so it's by, when we're sitting, you know, and meditation's great because people think, oh, I'm gonna meditate and it's gonna be amazing. That's what I go and do when I'm feeling anxious. But then we sit and meditate and all of the self-aggression, you're not doing it right, breathe right, you know, whatever it is, meditate, calm down. <laughs> and so it's right there in our face. Like we're just like, I'm, me I'm literally meditating and yet I'm somehow doing that very thing. And so, oh, we begin to see it more clearly. And you see, oh, this is not, impenetrable, it's just a really seductive habit. 
It gave me something at some point, and it's hard to let it go. So we begin to have some insight, right? Through just sitting and breathing and watching our thoughts, you know? The waterfall of thoughts just And we begin to see how we use that, you know, or how that comes up. And that's the doorway in, right, to a more intimacy with ourselves. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, thank you. Um, I was wondering, I meditate a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think I I think I know you know how to meditate, but I'm not sure that I have wisdom. Like I, you're talking about how wisdom comes through like becoming familiar with things like whatever it is that you're dealing with anxiety, fear, self-aggression or aggression. What does wisdom feel like? Because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I couldn't sit in front of people because I, I just don't know how, what wisdom means, you know? That's a very beautiful question, actually. And I think it's something that you might contemplate for yourself. What does wisdom feel like to me? Right? Because what I... I think we associate wisdom with knowledge, but I think wisdom is actually um, really heartfelt. I mean, there's intelligence, there's cognitive intelligence, but there's also a, a heart intelligence. The Sakyang says that the first fruits of just shamatha, peaceful abiding meditation, is stability clarity and strength of the mind. So the mind is stable. It's not stolen by every headline. It's, there's a sense of clarity like, yes, I should do that. No, I shouldn't do that. Right? And there's a sense of strength to like keep, keep going. And that really begins to tap into our, once we begin to kind of, once we, to go back to the original metaphor, you have to kind of like clear out some of the piled up newspapers. Then you can see what to do with the room. But some of us like to decorate in our minds or go on some websites and do the, decor the interior decorating, but we're like living with trash and you know, broken furniture. So first we have to see what's, see what's there. Okay, how do I work with what's here? one magazine at a time, right? Over time, I begin to clear the space and work with what's going on. And wisdom, they say, the language they use is like wisdom arises, right? So it's something that, um, it's not like a possession, right? But it begins to arise and we can be wise about some things and not about others, you know. So I think it's your, really your own sense of um, paying attention, really. Being present. Not necessarily having a game plan. I'm a structuralist. I like plans. I'm, you know, I have Google Docs for everything. But sometimes it's just about being present and seeing what arises. No, you don't like that answer? No, yeah. no it's good. It's like, I, I, you know, sometimes, like if you meditate a lot and then you come out of a meditation retreat, you think like, pretty clear. Yeah. But then you go back and you meditate for like 20 minutes a day and suddenly it's just, just chaos again. <laughs> and like the clarity is just gone and, um, it's just, I don't, I, I just don't know where that abides, you know, what wisdom really is that can go beyond just like meditation yeah. retreats, clarity. I mean, one thing that you, if you don't already have a meditation instructor, that might be something that's helpful, where you can, someone who can give you not only instruction, but sort of some listen to what you're saying and maybe give you some suggestions about how to work with things. 
um, because sometimes it's hard to see our own wisdom. And then when we have a spiritual friend, or Kalyana Mitra, so it's called, a spiritual friend can help us. Um, so I wanted to ask a um, question. I was trying to form it in my own mind, but I, I work with somebody who is really into comic books. Mm -hmm. uh, he feels like everybody has a superpower. Um, so it's, it's, it's good to work with him. It's just that um, <laughs> he, he, he tends to give a lot of like, negative feedback. Uh -huh. um, it's, um, and I'm, I always believe you know, people come into your life to teach you something about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm used to working uh, with people who are always giving me positive feedback. So mm. now getting this negative feedback from him all of the time makes me um, kind of put myself down a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm learning that, wow, I really depended on that from other people, like that positive reinforcement. Mm. Um, and now that I'm only getting like this Mm -hmm. Negative. Um, mm -hmm. it, instead of seeing it like, wow, okay, I have to work on these things, I'm just like, wow, I'm terrible, you know? So yes. it's like trying to find that balance where I'm like, okay, um, it, I guess I'm just, I was just very used to just being always told like, oh, wow, you're so nice, you're so great, blah, blah, blah you know? Yeah. And now it's just like, like it's just hard, you know? Yeah. And it's like, and I totally understand like that, you know, you have to be able to see other sides and stuff like that. It's just dealing with, like, not letting it kind of, like, trying to see the wisdom in that in a yes. way, but not letting it kind of, like, make you feel like crap. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know. Um, well, I think it is um, in a work situation or in situations where someone has authority over you and their what uh, their um, communication to you is neg only negative or mostly negative that's that's very challenging yeah and um, it's not uh, a all or nothing situation where it's like well everything they say is right and I'm just refusing to see what's um, I need to work on so I think it's great that you can say have this insight to be like, oh, huh. I like I'm I'm shifting my internal relationship to myself based on external circumstances. And that's a very dangerous game to play, right? Because we all know that you know we don't we just don't know, right? We all know we don't know. At the same time, you know. Um, there are people who are working through their own stuff and they sometimes are good at finding, they can like sniff out the person that they feel that they can let loose on. So there's a part of, I think, what gets lost in translation or got lost in translation when the Dharma came west is that there was some, the, the, Orientalist way that in the West we see the quote-unquote East is that it's so soft and bliss and it's very You know having wisdom or having prajna having meditate. It's, it's very strong and in Shambhala in particular Our abiding image is a warrior. So we're not just like oh, I'm so Whatever. Yeah, it's all my fault. There's a sense of knowing what to accept and what to reject this sense of like yes I know that I'm too dependent on external validation, but also what, how this person is speaking to me is actually really unkind or cruel or whatever. So we don't just lay down and, you know, we don't have idiot compassion. We can have compassion and also have boundaries. Okay. That's compassionate, right? So it's a balance of being able to see what we see, but also being able to also see this is someone who's like maybe whose opinion I should take with like a pound of salt, you know? <laughs> but you know, work is tricky because it is like, it, it mimics family relationships. Yeah. I, there's not one re work relationship I've been in in my life where there wasn't some familial dynamic going on, where I wasn't like having some hysterical, historical reaction 
to something going on. And it's like, what got better was me. Learning how to work with my own, whatever it is, whether it's like, uh, you know, uh, I like to work. So that's very dangerous in a capitalist economy. It's like, oh, you like to work? We'll put you to work. <laughs> um, and I could really get a lot, I get a lot of validation from completing tasks. And so I would work all the time. In my 20s, I would work 90, 100 hours a week. And then go out you know, to the club on the weekends. And it was like, that was the life. And there was a sense of um, no one was going to say, don't keep working like that. Right? So there has to be a sense of knowing yourself and also knowing the environment you're in. That's part of meditation, too. We meditate, and we're kind of becoming aware of our internal environment, but we're also aware of the, you know, the AC and the people around us and the lights, and that we don't just shut it out. We are working with both internal and external. Um, so you know, take care of yourself in that situation, and also cherish what you notice. Keep practicing and keep taking care of yourselves. And we'll end with a bow if you'd like. Thanks, Shante. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for telling your friends about the podcast. Visit our website, nmy.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Again, Shambhala Training Weekend 1, our introductory meditation weekend, is coming up the weekend of June 29th. Email us at podcast at shambhalanyc.org. Your questions, comments, suggestions. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You can hear these talks live and in person. Okay. I've got some flying to do. Catch you next time.